We continue a series of studies from the uh, letter to the Romans, and today, uh, as you have read just now, we are looking at the entire chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to keep it open. It's not a very easy passage to study, but we praise God that uh, we have His Word, we have His revealed will, and our prayer is that we will be humble to uh, be instructed by it. Let me begin by mentioning the word loophole, loopholes. It is human nature uh, for people to look for loopholes and to use them. So loopholes, I hear of it quite often in conversations. I hear of bosses using loopholes to avoid paying employees more. I hear of buyers, I hear of shoppers looking for loopholes to minimize tax payment or sometimes even avoid them. I learn about parents finding loopholes so that their kids can get into the school of their choice. And so this skill of figuring out loopholes is so common, it's so intuitive, that somebody said that the mark of a true blue Singaporean is not how well they can follow the law, but how well they can get around it without breaking it. Now, in our passage today, the Apostle Paul is confronted with loopholes because according to those who opposed Paul, the gospel that the Apostle preaches, aha, it had loopholes. So Paul had already pointed out in chapter 5 that the law revealed sin and that the law increased sin. But worry not, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, because God's grace abounded all the more. And so there is that loophole, Paul, according to Paul's opponents, that as sin increased, grace increased all the more. So the enemies pointed out that Paul is encouraging sin so that God's may increase. So let's sin all the more, they said, so that God's grace will increase all the more. But the gospel that Paul preaches, my friends, is watertight. It does not have cracks that, according to the enemies of the gospel, cracks that promote and encourage sin. And so in today's chapter, chapter 6, Romans 6, Paul now teaches his hearers, and us as well, what the grace of God does and what the grace of God does not. So firstly, first point, God's grace, which is the undeserved righteousness that is given unto one who believes in Jesus, God's grace does not incentivize sin. First point, God's grace does not incentivize sin. God's grace is not a stimulus to sin. Why? Well, because God's grace made you and I dead to sin. So Paul tells us that Christians died to sin. We died to sin, he says in verse 2. You could not be living in sin anymore because if you had died to sin. Grace cannot be promoting sin because grace made you dead to sin. But when did our death to sin occur? What's our DOD, date of death? Well, it was at one's conversion on the day one is baptized into the Lord Jesus. Baptism being a sign of one's faith in Jesus. 
And so that day of conversion, that day of baptism, is one's date of death. Death to sin, that is. Death to sin happened then and there. And now why is it called death to sin? Paul explains. He says, because when we obey the gospel, when we put our faith in Jesus, our faith in Christ is a union with him. We join with Jesus, our, and we are united with Jesus in his death. So next slide. He tells us in verses 3 to 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So it's called death to sin because faith in Christ is a joining with Christ in his death. It is our participation with him in his death. Now, of course, you may ask, how is this, you know, participation in death even possible when Jesus' death occurred more than 2,000, some 2,000 years ago? Furthermore, how is this union even possible if you and I are alive and kicking today, right? Last time I checked, you and I are alive and kicking. How is that even possible if you and I are not confined in a tomb? Well, Paul calls our union with Christ a baptism into death. Our union is a symbolical union with Christ in his death. No, it wasn't a very mystical joining of ourselves with Christ. Our union is rather what is called, according to scholars, a forensic relationship. A forensic relationship. So forensic, you've, you've heard of that term, right? If you uh, watch the CSI, because I used to follow CSI many years ago. Who are you? Who, who, who? See, forensic, right? Forensic is, as, as, as I understood it back then, it's the investigation of a crime using scientific methods. Our forensic relationship with Christ is not using that concept, but forensic as in that which relates to the court of law. So if you've been reading the news, sometimes you will read the court appointed a forensic psychologist to examine, you know, the defendant, uh, to test him. So forensic as in that which refers to or in relation to the courts of law. And so our union with Christ in his death is a forensic relationship, meaning judicially God sees us, God views us, in association with his son. And so his son was, his son died and was buried. And we who believe in Jesus, God views us as having died, as having been buried with Jesus too. The result is that God applies to us whatever Jesus attained by his death. That whatever Jesus won judicially, God applies it to us as well. You know, it's a little bit like it's a little bit like having a power of attorney granted to you by a donor. Uh, the power of attorney. What does the power of attorney do to you? That well, if you have the power of attorney, when concerned parties deal with you, they view you. They see you as if you are the donor 
himself. And so whatever you sign, whatever you approve as a power of attorney, it's considered signed and approved by the donor. And so God's viewing of us, it's a little bit like having a POA, a power of attorney, yet it is more than that. It is having a POA plus being appointed as a beneficiary and an heir. And so God sees us, God views us in association with Jesus, and God applies to us what Jesus attained by his death. And so what did Jesus attain for himself that we also have a share in? Well, it is his, his resurrection. Next slide. Verse 8 tells us, for if we have, or rather verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And also in verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So what did Jesus attain for himself after he had died? It's resurrection. Resurrection. God raised him from the dead. God gave him resurrection. And we share resurrection with Jesus because of our union, because of our forensic relationship with him. We shall attain resurrection in the end. We shall have a resurrected body just like our Lord's. But now, while we await physical resurrection, like Jesus, we live to God. And so this reveals to us that, you know, that in the past, in the past before we obeyed and before we followed Jesus, our lives were not lives that were lived unto God. Nope. Our lives instead were lives lived for sin. We obeyed sin. We did sin. We lived in sin. But on our DOD, on our date of death to sin, this is what happened. Next slide, verses 6 to 7. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And so on our DOD, date of death, our former self was crucified with Jesus. Our body of sin is done and dusted. And so the death which followed crucifixion now releases us from sin. It releases us from that cruel master that once bound us because death severs its hold on us. And so grace, my friends, does not incentivize one to sin. It does not promote further sinning. Why? Because grace joined us with Jesus in his crucifixion, in his death, in his burial. Grace made us dead to sin. And having died to sin, we have been set free from sin. Furthermore, the death of Jesus, which was one time and uh, an unrepeatable death, his death had far-reaching implications, had wide-reaching implications. Next slide. 
verses 9 to 10 tells us, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And so for Jesus, there is no more going back to his former life when the Lord came to earth to die to sin. His mission, which was to deal with sin, Jesus, he had accomplished it fully. He died to sin though he was without sin. Jesus died to sin, though he lived unto God and continues to live to God. Jesus died to sin, not because he was under the dominion of sin, no, but he died to sin because he became sin for us. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians. He took the curse by becoming a curse for us. You see that in Galatians. Jesus died to sin. And he died to it once for all. And so those 33 years of his life, which was lived for that purpose, are done and dusted. And so here then is the implication for us. Now we already know that our union with Jesus, who died to sin, caused us to die too to sin. But in addition to that, listen to this. If for Jesus there is no more going back to that former life and to die again, that applies to us as well. There is no more going back for us to that former way of life in which we lived. There is for us no more going back to that sin-controlled life. Why? Because we already died to sin. It's done and dusted. And so, instead, from henceforth, from our date of death, we, like Jesus, we now live to God. Next slide. God's grace in Jesus made us dead to sin. And so grace does not incentivize us to sin. Instead, this is what grace does to us. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And so what does grace do to you and I? What does it do to us? Well, it empowers us to say no to sin. Paul says elsewhere in Titus chapter 2 that the grace of God that brings salvation unto all of us, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God empowers us to live instead self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The grace of God teaches us to not let sin reign in us any longer. The grace of God teaches us not to offer ourselves to unrighteousness, but instead to righteousness. Why? Because God rescued us over from death to life. And so that means, friends, that to be dead to sin does not mean that uh, you and I have become desensitized to sin, as if you're numb to it. 
Our death to sin does not mean that you and I no longer find sin enticing. Sin still has its allure, my friends. Sin still seduces us, people. Sin continues to tempt us. And so, going back to my illustration a while ago, so the sin of greed, for example, still tempts you to find loopholes in order for you to avoid paying taxes? Or the sin of pride still tempts you to search for loopholes so that your kid can have a chance to go to the top school? Sin is still attractive. Hence, it will not do just to have a mental assent, knowing that we are dead to sin. We must act it out as well. Verse 11 tells us, And so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Question. Have you ever met somebody who's dead and does not know it? Let me repeat that. Have you ever met somebody who's dead and doesn't, doesn't know it? Remember the old movie? I see dead people. And for those of you who are younger, maybe Hotel Del Luna. Ever met somebody who's dead but does not know it? It's only in the movies. Only in the movies. We are dead to sin. And we should not live like we do not know we are dead. And so we must reckon, so we must consider, so we must count ourselves dead to sin because we have been delivered from the tyranny and slavery of sin. And now we are free to present ourselves to another master. Which brings me to my next point. Grace does not allow oscillating between two masters. Grace does not let you alternate between two masters. So the second part of chapter 6, Paul illustrates this point by using the master-slave example. There are two master he t masters, he tells us, sin and righteousness. Now, who does a Christian belong to? Simple answer. He belongs to the one he obeys. So if, if, if he obeys sin, he is a slave to sin. If he obeys righteousness, he is a slave of righteousness. So Paul says in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which uh, leads to righteousness? So to whom do you belong? To whom do you belong? Well, the answer is whomever you choose to obey, Paul tells us. And Paul's illustration serves to point out a few things. Slaves are called to obey. That's why they're called slaves. And they obey their masters. And a slave obeys only one master. It is either this master or that master. Either sin or obedience slash righteousness. The slave cannot have two masters. So Paul also points out the uh, contrasting outcomes of both slaveries. The slave of sin reaps death, but the slave of obedience, on the other hand, reaps righteousness. And so 
Slaves are called to obey singularly one master, and they reap accordingly to the kind of master they obey. And so which master shall it be? Well, Paul says, next slide. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So the Christian, by God's grace, became obedient to the gospel, because the Lord enabled you to hear and understand the gospel and be committed and obedient to it. The Christian has been set free from the cruel master's sin and is now serving the better master. So twice, Paul uses the phrase, set free, set free, in order to emphasize God's divine rescue and in order to emphasize man's, our helpless state. God set us free from the cruel master that enslave us to impurity, that enslave us to lawlessness, and all things that you and I are now very, very ashamed of. And that's not all. What we were enslaved to, in the end, it leads to death. Because Paul says the wages of sin is death. Death is the harvest you get. Death is the payment you receive. Death is going to be your pension. And now all you need to do is just picture this slave and master illustration. Now, if you picture it in your head, it is very scary. It's very fatal to be bound to serve a master and to only receive death in the final. And you read the news. The news has no shortage of such examples. Paul says in verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Notice there's that phrase again set free. You've been set free. Yes, you and I could have died under slavery to sin, but we have been set free. We have been set free, and now we serve a better master, God. And in God, we have righteousness that leads to sanctification, and in the end, not death, but eternal life. So unlike the master sin, who pays you death as your wage, this better master, God, he does not pay us. He gives us a free gift. The free gift is called eternal life in Jesus. And so why does Paul contrast two kinds of slavery, two kinds of masters? Well, because God's grace sets one free from sin. And God's grace does not allow you and I to oscillate, to swing between two masters, the former master and the current master. And so are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Are we to sin because we are, not under the, we are now under the domain of grace and freed from the power of law which condemns us of sin? He says, by no means, no way. Because God's grace sets you free from sin, from your cruel master. Because God's grace gives you now 
a good master. So you know domestic helpers? Domestic helpers, they tell me stuff about their employers. Now as I say that, some of your faces became pale. <laughs> they tell me who's good, they tell me who's tolerable, and who's really bad. Now if you think that they are just bad-mouthing, all you need to do is just read the news about domestic helpers who are being abused. There are really employers from hell. And now when a maid is rescued and released from such a master, from such an employer, try asking them, can you be enticed to go back to work for your former employer? What do you think will their answer be? By no means. No way. Well, what about, you know, occasionally working for your former employer, like part-time? Answer? Absolutely no. I'm not going to swing back once in a while to that and go back to the cruel master. Absolutely no. Why? Because she remembers the former way of life under that cruel master. So God's grace does not mean that one can swing to and fro masters because that is <laughs> inconceivable. That is ridiculous even, considering the former way of life under the former master. God's grace does not permit moonlighting for the former master's sin because God's grace sets one free from sin. God's grace rescues us from the domain of law and sin, of sin and death. And so in ending, the gospel that is the power of God for salvation does not have loopholes, friends. Doesn't have loopholes. By no means does it promote sin. Neither does it encourage serving both sin and God. And so with this, we must then ponder, ask yourself this question. How's your life been ever since the day you obeyed the gospel? Since your DOD, date of death to sin. Can you say of your life to be a life of service that is fully given unto the Lord who saved you? Or do you find yourself secretly, occasionally, two-timing the Lord, offering yourself occasionally to serve sin? The Apostle Peter urges us to be diligent to confirm our calling and election. And how do we do that? By making effort to supplement our faith with qualities such as self-control, godliness, brotherly affection, love, lacking of which can only mean that one has forgotten that one was cleansed from his, from her, former sin. Paul exhorts us not only to assent mentally that we are dead to sin, we are called to live like one, too, by not letting sin get back its reign on us, by not letting sin creep back slowly and gain back its domain. How do we do so? Well, I think of a few practices. Firstly, 
Do not buy the lie that good deeds cancel the bad. Which means do not belittle occasional sins, thinking that anyway you've been obedient most of the time. Telling yourself you've been a good boy, you've been a good girl half the time. If you do that, that is believing that good deeds somehow cancel the bad. Believe instead that sin corrupts. It corrupts. Do it a few times, it has a desensitizing effect on you. Believe that God's grace empowers you to say no to sin and then grow in godliness. So do not believe the lie that good deeds cancel the bad, that I'm okay because I've done a lot of good things and this is just one small sin. And so to the married, when your spouse points out your sin, do not fling back quickly and say, that's you, you always notice that one sin, but you never, ever commend me for the good things that I've done. Instead, you and I need to praise God and say, praise God that you've given me a spouse to point out that one sin. Because the mission of marriage, the goal of marriage is to make the other, the other spouse, make one another beautiful and holy at the coming of Jesus. Do not buy the lie that good cancels bad. Repent of sin. Next point. And when you fall into sin, do not settle for brief mourning over sins. Do not be satisfied with short, Lord, forgive me, and then move on. Don't get used to that. Let your mourning over sin extend a little bit longer so that it will lead you to run to Jesus, so that it will lead you to find forgiveness in Him, so that it will lead you to seek ways to purge the idol from you. So never get used to just saying, Lord, forgive me, and then move on. And when you have sinned against fellow, when you have sinned against one another, do not settle for easy sorries without making restitutions, without doing some makeups. Now, parents know this, don't we? If our child says, sorry, uh, we're not satisfied with that. We don't want a child coming, having hit his sibling and said, but I already said sorry. When we've wronged a fellow, do not settle for easy sorries without making restitutions. Instead, ask the Lord for fruits of repentance. And so never settle for haste mornings over sin. Let it extend a little bit longer so that it will lead you to find ways to purge sin from you. Lastly, remind yourself of the old life that God rescued you from. Do a quick flashback. You know, the Apostle, call, uh, the Apostle Paul, rather, he calls it the life and the things that you are now ashamed of. So once in a while, if you do a quick flashback, is the past life a life that you are now ashamed of? It better be. Do a quick flashback whenever 
you are tempted. Whenever sin entices you, think of think of the, the, the past life that you were rescued from. Whenever sin smiles at you, whenever sin winks at you, and so you will tell yourself, "I be a fool to be going back to that." It's good to always remind ourselves of the old life that God has rescued us. And so do we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Let us pray. We give thanks, Father, for the rescue that you have made available in your Son, the Lord Jesus, who, gave, who became sin for us, so that on the cross he nailed our sins and we who believe in him are joined in him, in his death, in his burial and now live new life unto you. Empower us to always remind ourselves that we are dead to sin. That is how you, have, you see us and that we will always reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and offer our whole unto you as slaves to righteousness, looking forward to the eternal life that is in store for those who have your Son as their Lord and Savior. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.